and welcome to Say Hi to the Future, a podcast aimed at highlighting the human side of ingenuity, clever, inventive, and original thinking. My name is Ken Tenser, CEO of SpiderWorks, a leading business consultancy for mid-market organizations and entrepreneurs globally. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. With me today is Catherine Sizov, CEO and founder of Strella Biotechnology, a company that detects the ripeness of fruit, helping companies avoid potential food waste. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Catherine Sizov, welcome to Say Hi to the Future. Thanks so much for having me. So, Catherine, we're going to talk about Strella Biotechnology today, but before we jump into that and, and, and your, your company and your journey along with it, you actually studied molecular biology at the University of Pennsylvania. For those of us listening that may not know, what is molecular, excuse me, what is molecular biology? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the easiest way to put it is studying things that you cannot see. <laughs> so the really okay. teeny tiny uh, parts of biology. So proteins or neurons or things that are basically the gears of the larger piece, which is usually a biological organism. And so that relates to humans to, I mean, because you're, you're working with agriculture and produce. So when you talk about that, does that relate to all proteins in all different areas or? That's a good question. I, I actually started in studying humans uh, and human diseases, uh, specifically neuromuscular ones. Um, but a lot of the kind of basic core fundamental principles remain the same, right? Um, plants and animals have DNA. Uh, they, that DNA folds into proteins um, or encodes proteins. And so uh, a lot of the basics of molecular bio can be translated across different organisms, but a lot of the details are obviously pretty different. So you made quite a leap then from, from where you started into um, what Strella is doing today with, with food waste and, and looking at produce. How did, how did that happen? How did that whole idea come about? Yeah, um, I think it came about from a reading that 40% of food is wasted before it's consumed, um, which is not a statistic that I think belongs in the 21st century uh, whatsoever. I got swiftly after reading that, I felt very guilty because I didn't know where my food comes from at the grocery store. I just took it for granted that every day I can go in and have access to fresh food 24-7, basically. That led on a challenge of learning about the food supply chain, um, which is you know obviously a very complicated and daunting thing, but that's what makes it interesting to solve. So you're saying that 40% is wasted is before it's consumed. Is that Break it down a bit. So is that um, during or, or within the supply chain? Is that ourselves as consumers in our fridges? You know, how, how does that look or how does that break down a bit? I think in North America, about 12% of that is us as consumers. And then the rest of it is uh, things that happen within the supply chain. So basically, you can imagine the supply chain as a bunch of people playing hot potato with a perishable product. Um, and there's kind of no real guardian of the produce, making sure that it makes its way all the, all the way across the supply chain in a safe way. Um, and that's kind of the problem. And that's kind of where Strella started and came about. Um, but we also think that the consumer waste is oftentimes largely due to inconsistencies within the supply chain. So for example, you know, 
I'll go to the grocery store, I'll buy five avocados and two of them go bad before I can unpack my bag. <laughs> and then yeah. the other three of them kind of sit on the shelf for a couple of weeks. And that inconsistency is what causes me to throw $3 avocados away. But if I knew that every day that I walked into Whole Foods, for example, that the avocados were going to last me exactly three days, I could do a better job planning and reducing my consumer waste as well. So, so there's a lot tied up in what you're saying. And if, if we back it up to the supply chain, one, it almost seems like you're solving a number of problems, especially today. There's such a backup in supply chain in general that it seems like we are, we are shipping things destined for the garbage, landfill, whatever. And that, that in and of itself seems like a good thing to solve these days um, on top of you know, pure food wastage. Yeah, that's a really good point. So uh, one example is uh, kiwis. Kiwis are typically grown in Australia and New Zealand, and it usually takes them about 40 days to get to the United States. But with today's supply chain, it can be upwards of 120 days. And so, like you said, there's an even greater problem, which is, you know, if our existing supply chain had food waste, what do you do in situations like these where, you know, you really have to hold the produce for much longer uh, than you were initially anticipating? And I think the answer to that is, let's try to be a little bit smarter about what we're doing, right? Right now, there are very few parameters on perishable products. So there's very little data that can actually be used. And any data that does exist is siloed as a product moves. So for example, a grower knows a ton about you know the baby that they've nurtured and cared for and grown, um, but that information doesn't get translated to Walmart or Costco. And so how can we collect data, one, and two, translate that data across multiple different supply chain players as the product is moving. So, so as you're saying that, I'm wondering too, there, there is what we'll call the supply chain um, to retail. There is at retail. Is there ultimately an opportunity, as you alluded to before, to say um, these avocados are going to last for three days? Like, is, is that sort of the, the, the end goal there? Um, is it, is it something that a can support the consumer you know we're in the front of store but b help the retailers understand which produce should be put out first exactly that's exactly what we do with retailers so basically let's say you have uh, two pallets of avocados one pallet can you know sit in inventory or on the store shelf for many weeks and the other one can't do that so obviously logically you'd prioritize the one that can't move right now the retailer doesn't have that level of visibility. And so they're treating those two pallets of avocados the same way, which is why we have kind of an inconsistent product. But if we did have that knowledge, then we could always prioritize the fruit that was going to go bad faster, get it on the shelf without any consequence to the buyer, because it's this is all predictive and proactive um, and use that really strong fruit as kind of a buffer, if you will, to make sure that we have that flexibility in the supply chain. So ultimately... I mean, I, I'm also seeing is because I know that you're you're growing. I know you've taken Series A, which we'll talk a little bit about. It seems like there's an incredible business model here, if you will. I mean, one waste along the way is is wasted um, profits for um, you know the, the retailers in the supply chain, and waste uh, along the way is something that we as consumers don't want to keep paying for. So, is is this something that will become affordable to implement or is it already affordable to implement? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're commercialized um, with a lot of suppliers right now. Our bread and butter is in apples and pears in the United States. And so we basically use our technology to do maturity-based inventory management upstream with huge volumes of apples and pears. And then we're translating that technology into you know smaller resolution data to help retailers and importers do the same thing. So work with their inventory in a smarter way. And sorry, what, what is smaller resolution data? Yeah. So for example, a supplier of apples is moving 5 million apples at once, a huge volume because they've got really big customers, lots of, you know, lots of demand uh, for their product. Um, And so up in supplier levels, what we do is we organize inventory on huge resolutions, like 5 million apples at once. A retailer, (laughs) you know, when they're thinking about what to send to a grocery store, it's not on the level of 5 million apples, right? Um, And so we have to break it down into a little bit more uh, actionable chunks for retailers and importers. And and how does your technology physically do this? I mean, one of one of the things that I I I, I read, um, you know, from I, something you wrote was about fruits talk. We listen. <laughs> do fruits talk? How did you figure that out? And what are they telling you? Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, uh, fruit produce communicate with each other as they're ripening. Um, So there's some sort of evolutionary advantage to all the fruit on a tree ripening at the same time. I think you want all the fruit to drop to the ground uh, in order to attract uh, deer and other things to eat it. And so the way that fruit do this is they talk to each other using a gas called ethylene. Ethylene is kind of the first thing, the first indicator of maturity because the fruit are telling each other, hey, I'm starting to ripen. I think you should too. And that's where you get that effect of one bad apple spoils the bunch. Or if you ever put an unripe banana next to a ripe one, you see that it ripens a lot faster than if it was by itself. And so the idea is, well, why don't we intercept these communications? The fruits are telling us that they're maturing. And the cool thing is this has been known about uh, for a while. <clears throat> this has been known about since about the seventies. Um, lots of universities have done studies on ethylene gas uh, as it relates to communication. And so we thought, well, you know what, let's, let's intercept those communications and let's build a sensor that's basically like a piece of fruit, but it's just sitting there and listening to what, what the other fruit are saying, and then use that to predict how ripe they are. Very cool. So, you know, it's with the show was say, hi, hi, being human ingenuity, clever, inventive, original thinking. We, we talk a lot about passion and savage curiosity. Why do you think that it was you who picked up the ball, if you will, on something that has been around for the 70s? Like what what moved you to make that major switch um, during your undergrad and and pursue this company? I think uh, on the broader scale, I think um, there's always a little bit of a gap between academia and the field, if you will. So there are things that are studied and understood, but that aren't translated in a way that people can use them and understand it in their operation process in a way that isn't difficult or a lot of extra work or understandable. Um, and so I think that's a very critical piece to doing anything, especially when you're introducing a new technology into an industry. On the personal side, I think I wanted to just see what would happen if I went 100% on something. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of the reason for, for finding a problem that I was really passionate about. And, and where do you start? I mean, starting a business is, is always super challenging, but that morning you wake up and you say, this is the business that I want to start, that I want to get into. 
tell me about some of the challenges and and speaking to people about the concept and and how you were able to even push it across the goal line, if you will. Totally. And I don't think there is one goal line, which is another challenge is that, you know, it's moving goalposts and it certainly is hard. Like, you know, one of the challenges I faced was that I didn't have a schedule, right? Uh, No one cared when I woke up, no one cared what I was doing with myself that day and coming out of a structured environment, like, school, um, that's a little bit challenging to adapt and adjust to that. And there's a lot of, you know, oh man, I really have to follow my gut here and what I think is right over like just a standard structure. Um, So that's always really challenging. I did leverage university. Um, so I think that people sometimes uh, might misconstrue the idea of a risk. You know, I don't think it's that big of a risk, especially when you're in college to try something out and, you know, fall flat on your face sometimes, you know, because the whole point is that you know, you're young, you're learning, you're not an expert in anything yet. So (laughs) there's no expectations. Um, And so I think I leveraged a lot of that kind of freedom and flexibility to try to build something uh, at a university. But in general, I think people take the idea of starting something as like a huge risk, but I don't think it is. I think Bill Bird said something along the lines of, you know, sleeping on someone else's couch when you're 35, pursuing your passion isn't really a risk. A risk is, you know, waking up in a king size bed next to someone you don't like doing something you hate and realizing what the heck am I doing with my life? And I totally agree with that. (laughs) So you talk about your, your, your gut and, and how your gut drove you to make some of the decisions. Um, What did the, what did your gut tell you about who you should bring along on this journey. Yeah, I think it started out as a need basis. So, you know, I've got that molecular bio background and I can start building a sensor, but I can't, for example, get a signal from that sensor to the cloud. I have no idea how to do that. And so I looked for an engineer who could help me do that. And that was the first person that came on board, Ziyang, who still is with Strela, an incredible person to call him. Just an engineer is doing him a disservice. Um, and then after that, uh, I found my co-founder, Jacob. He knew so much about apples and storage and ag, having worked at DuPont previously. And I was like, wow, this is refreshing. <laughs> you know, This guy knows so much about my industry, knows my customers. So it's a pretty natural fit. Um, to start to work together. And I think that's just how it went is, you know, as you're growing, expanding your capabilities, you realize, wow, I can't do something. Um, and that's when it's time to uh, bring someone new onto the team. And so you bring this team together, it's fledgling, you come up with, I guess, what would have been your MVP. How do you start to present this to, to the supply chain? And where do you start? Yeah, we started super, super upstream. So very close to the grower. We worked with the packer first. So the packer is someone who takes, you know, apples and pears that have been picked and then they're responsible for storing them. So yeah, an apple in a grocery store can be over a year old. Um, And this is because all the apples are mainly domestic. um, And so they're picked around now, right? Like, you know, August, September, October is when you have your apple season, but you can buy an American apple in like June, July. Um, And so the way that that happens is that apples are stored. Uh, And so what we did was we said, okay, well, if we can tell which storage room is the most ripe, that could be really useful because right now packers are kind of playing a little bit of a game of behind which door is the most mature fruit, you know? Um, And that's not great when each room is worth between one and 5 million bucks Mm -hmm. Uh, and it can turn into applesauce, which is $0. (laughs) Uh, So what we do is we put those sensors inside those storage rooms um, and we monitor um, their ripening. 
And the first route, the first year that we just trialed, so we weren't getting any paying customers or anything. We we're just seeing if it worked that first year, we helped a customer save like about $600,000 um, because they were going to hold a room way longer than it should have been held. Uh, and that's when, you know, we started seeing that this could be something um, profitable and useful, which is doubly important. So, so when you're talking about the sensors and monitoring the room, you're monitoring the level of, of ethylene gas, the, the emittance. I'm not exactly sure. I How does that work? Well, the biggest thing is the rate of change. So if you're a packer, your job is to say, okay, well, when the fruit has been picked off the tree, that's it's good quality. Typically, you, you don't want it to get much more mature. Um, you want it to kind of stay the way that it is. And so what we do is we say, okay, we want to keep the fruit the same way. And so what we look at mostly is the rate of change of ethylene emission. So the fruit is in that room and it's, you know, kind of hibernating. And then at some point it wakes up and starts maturing. And that's why you kind of want to tell the packer, Hey, this fruit has woken up. You've got a couple of months until it starts changing in quality. So let's start sending that down the supply chain. And how does it work between different types of produce? I mean, one, I got to be honest, I did not know that I was eating year old apples until about two minutes ago. Um, how does that work between different types of, of produce? I mean, because I'm guessing that the kiwi, kiwi versus the apple versus the avocado um, ripen at different paces naturally. Yeah, they do. And they have different um, kind of decision points. So, for example, pears, they get softer earlier uh, in their maturity phase. And that's a problem when you're putting it into boxes and things like that because they can bump and bruise. And so... While every piece of fruit emits, not every piece of fruit, but 30% of the food waste is generated by 10 commodities, all of which uh, emit ethylene. And those pieces of fruit all emit ethylene, but the way that they do it is a little bit different. And so basically the technology is the same, but the models and the way that we use to interpret the data that we collect is different. And what was even more stunning to me is that the emissions that you're measuring um, or the carbon emissions of food waste are greater than all transportation combined. And and as you say, we think about cars being the huge problem or the number one, it's actually food waste. How how does that come about? That's that's an incredible sort of eye-opener to me. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, It's just stuff rotting in the landfill, um, which is generating carbon emissions and that's that's really upsetting because you know cars at least there's some sort of you know usefulness to them um but food waste it's just going bad and it's wasting natural resources and so um there's absolutely no winning um when you're talking about food waste i recently heard a statistic that um leaf blowers are actually way worse than cars because they don't have a catalytic converter. You know, running a leaf blower for 10 minutes is the equivalent in carbon emissions as driving a car from Seattle to San Diego, I believe, which is crazy. So apparently leaf blowers are the real problem here. (laughs) I did not know that either. So what what we're talking about too, um, when I I look at Strella, we've done a lot of um, discussions with people in ag tech in general. And um, agricultural technology just seems to be one of the most important areas. Are are, are you, as Strela grows, are are you more and more involved in that overall ag tech discussion of, uh, you know, obviously there are more people, there's less land, there are fewer people who want to work the land, if you will. So are, are you more and more involved in that type of 
level of discussion? Yeah, I think uh, with ag, there's a lot of different facets. There's the innovation piece of it. So what can we do to solve problems like labor shortages, like uh, increased production, um, like these delayed supply chain issues. Um, There's the legislative piece of it, which is, you know, how do we incentivize people to do the right thing? Or how can we, yeah, what kind of change can we enact um, from the government side of things? Um, And then there's the corporate side, uh, which is how can we make, you know, companies uh, do a better job when it comes to being sustainable and resourceful um, when they're when they're discussing ideas of agriculture. So I, I think I've I've been part of a lot of really interesting discussions um, to see how all these things can tie together and ultimately work together. But I think there's still again, it's a huge problem. Food waste is such a big, complicated problem and it requires so many different folks. I think we're still we still got a long way to go. Well, no, I, I agree with you there, but I am glad to hear that you're, you're becoming part of the conversation. And I've heard it on so many different levels um, of technology, of technology in certain areas to run equipment, um, how it's not available, how connectivity is not available. So many things that I think that combined with what companies like Strella are doing that, that can change the complexion of, of agriculture completely and waste. So it's it's uh, wonderful here that wonderful to hear that the next generation is so fully committed. Yeah, I think a lot of folks want, you know, especially in, in my generation, want to do something that's um, that makes a change in a positive way for for their environment and the people around them. And I think agriculture can absolutely provide that type of uh, feeling good about what you do. You know, it's in the real world and it's it's about feeding people, um, which is kind of one of the primary things we do. <laughs> so right. uh, super important. That's an important point too, because having a passion for what we're doing and, and building a company that actually creates greater value for humanity. I think it Frankly, I look back and I've started next to the number. I mean, that really is is the key differentiator. When you can find something you're passionate about that actually provides that greater level of give back, I think you're you're in a wonderful place. A thousand percent. I think obviously starting something like a a startup or any venture or any personal endeavor is very challenging. And so there's always some sort of truth that you have to stick to at the end of the day to get yourself through those tough situations. And I think for people, yeah, our team, it's hopefully everything that we're doing here is something good, you know, uh, something that can be helping others. Um, and that, and that's what keeps us going. So how far down the road do you look with, uh, with Strella? Do you look a year down three years? Like where, where do you see this? you know, evolving to? That's a good question. Well, right now we're working in other commodities. So we started in apples and pears and we're expanding into bananas and flowers and kiwis. Um, so we're working on that as well as other supply chain segments. So, yeah, we started really, really close to the grower doing huge volumes of stuff. And now we're looking into working with retailers and working with importers and connecting that supply chain with all this information that we've collected. Um, ultimately, I think what we're trying to do is to build a system of record, basically have that ultimate transparency and visibility into what a piece of produce is doing from the moment it was picked all the way that it reached the consumer's hands. Um, and that presents a lot of interesting future opportunities as well. Dare I bring up something like blockchain? I mean, is there a way that we're going to measure or follow every single piece? <laughs> I think in the current environment, we're not allowed to bring up 
<laughs> blockchain. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, you know, that's, that's a tool for, um, you know, keeping data uh, in, in a secure way that multiple users can access. And so there definitely is a natural fit for blockchain. I think there are other things to figure out on that side. For now, we'll be the ones generating the data. <laughs> Got it. God, it sounds good. So Catherine Sizoff, Strela Biotechnology. Our time's coming close to the end here, but I have one, one last question, if you will. Um, look, you, you've been incredibly successful. When I look at you, you've just come out of um, a Series A raise with some very, very well-known folks in, in the industry. You've got an incredible, um, as you say, continued support from your seed round investors who are very well known. How do you attract that level of investor? What is your pitch when you say, here is Strella, here's the idea? How did you engage with them? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm one I'm trying to figure out myself too, right? Um, <laughs> I think ultimately it comes down to picking something that you're so passionate about that you can say the same thing over and over 100,000 times and it still comes across as convincing and interesting um, and that you're motivated and driven by it. Um, and so I think that's what a lot of investment is, is uh, or pitching to investors is understanding what the core fundamentals of your business are, how you're going to make money, obviously, and how you're going to get there, but also being convincing people that you are the one that's going to do it. Thank you very much. Passion, savage curiosity, audacity. We talk a lot about just having the gumption to go out and do it, which you obviously did. So thank you so much for sharing some of your time today. Best of luck. And um, thanks again for being on Say Hi to the Future. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. If you enjoy this episode and you want to support our show, leave us a review and join our mailing list by visiting www.spider.works. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R.works and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a comment with who we should interview next. Thank you for listening and see you all next Friday.